Hello, everybody, and hello, Jack. Uh, I've brought my favorite MotoGP test expert uh, back <laughs> on the podcast again. Great to talk to you. Uh, we haven't talked in a while, I believe. Misano was the last time. So uh, how did you enjoy the winter test? You went to Malaysia and Qatar, if I'm not mistaken. So how did all the travel go, and did you enjoy it? Yeah, thanks for having me back on again. Uh, yeah, went pretty well, actually, not so bad. Um To be fair, the only hiccup I had really was uh, when I was flying back from uh, Kuala Lumpur after this pang test, the poor guy next to me started throwing up as the plane was taking off. So um, he had a bit of a rough time and I had to look after him for a, a few minutes. But apart from that, it was all good. Um, that was nice. Really good trip, actually, to Qatar, too. It was my first time in Qatar. Uh, cool place. Strange place, but very, very cool. And obviously the paddock in the in the circuit is unbelievable like it's it's a crazy crazy place it's a fair bit different from my local track back home Cadwell Park so uh, a bit of an upgrade on there but yeah really good trip it was good fun so you didn't uh, get the COVID vaccines back in 21 in Qatar <laughs> no no I wasn't there no my flatmate Jack Appiard was there and he got them luckily so all good and um, anything with the jet lag because I've heard on i believe joe rogan talked about it uh, and i listened to a podcast that he said that when you experience a jet lag you just have to get out of the plane and immediately work out and that apparently settles it so and i never got my ass out of europe so i don't know what it's like to have a jet lag <laughs> i would like to ask you how do you deal with it when you fly to the other end of the world Uh, I mean, I'm certainly no expert on it. I don't do it too often. Uh, Appleyard would be better at telling you how to deal with it. But no, I mean, usually I just take like the little um, melatonin pills, you know? Okay. Uh, the little gummies that they have are like one milligram. They're not that strong at all. Um, but to be fair, going to Sepang, like, I didn't have any jet, a jet lag at all while I was there because I think I slept for like maybe two hours across the two different flights and then just made sure I stayed up until the night and went to the gym like as joe roberts says went to the gym and kind of wore myself out and then took a melatonin before going to bed and slept pretty well so i didn't have anything there on the way back like i thought i was okay but then the second night when i was back in barcelona it caught with me and like i think it was like 8 p.m and i was already asleep so um yeah not too bad but apart from that yeah literally like one day of proper feeling tired and that was it nice I hope you survived the guy next to you in the plane without uh, throwing up as well. Yeah, yeah, not too bad. <laughs> like, he was so unlucky. Literally, as we were just throttling up to go and take off, he just reaches for the bag, the little sick bag in front of him, and just starts very casually throwing up into this bag. And like I was just watching something on the screen already, and I just looked across. I was like, oh, fucking hell, he's being sick. So... Um, poor guy wasn't too well, but thankfully the, there was a free row at the back of the plane. So the flight attendant took him there okay. for the whole flight and he just chilled out on his own. And I think by the end, he wasn't feeling too bad. He came back to his seat next to me for landing um, and he was feeling fine. But yeah, poor fucker, like yeah. just throwing up immediately as the plane takes off. I think the smell of puke is one of the most disgusting things you can smell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so It's normally you get the... The urge to uh, puke as well, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I'm quite glad that he was at the back of the plane because, like, when he did come back, like, he smelled a little bit yeah. of sick, but not that bad. So if I was sat next to him for six hours, you know, and he was smelling a sick, I think yeah, I yeah. probably would have needed to get up and go for a walk at some point. <laughs> but it's just uh, economy class, so you don't have the, well, 
Yeah, yeah. No, don't want to put in me in an economy. I'm not a, a boss yet, so no, uh, no business for me. <laughs> Maybe they should do it when you do it just twice a year. It would be nice, but it's a, a lot of money. <laughs> so, um, Is Jack uh, Appleyard uh, commentating Model 3 again? I believe, yeah. I, I don't know the exact plan for commentary pairings this year, but I presume it will be the same as last year. So yeah. he'll do Motor 3. He just did Motor 3, right? Yeah, yeah. just Motor 3. Because I enjoyed it. He had like a energy to it that was refreshing. Yeah, he's a good commentator. Like, he's Jack can talk for days and he's always like random thoughts and waffling away. So, yeah, yeah it, good commentator for particularly like when it's a free practice and it's boring and you don't have anything to talk about. Jack can find something yeah. to talk about. So, he's really good at that. I think with the interviews, uh, somebody like you makes a better job because as the That's interviewer, you know, you need to give the floor to somebody else and. Um, Jack is talking so fast and so much and you know that I think <laughs> that's, commentating that's, suits him better yeah well that's quite interesting because I was literally just chatting to Jack today and I think my interviews are like the worst thing that I have like I think I need to get a lot better at formulating questions and stuff like that I always feel like whenever I listen to my interviews back if I'm watching uh, the writer's uh, answer just to like write down the info whenever I hear my question I just think fucking hell I sound like a <laughs> dickhead but um Yeah, that's it. Like Jack's really good at the, the interviews too, particularly in the race weekends. Because the good thing with Jack is like he just has everything stored up there. Like when the riders come in for interview and stuff, we have like a schedule, and we request riders like based on their performance or interest stories over the weekend. And like I always like write out the rider's name in my notes on my phone, and then just like key points, you know, um of what happened in their race or during the qualifying or practice session, whichever day it is, just so I can remember, like quickly look down before I do the interview. But Jack like doesn't need that at all. He just remembers everything in his brain. It's like an elephant, you know, really good memory. So I may be biased with your interviews because we spent so many hours talking. So yeah. I, I got used to your character and your style of talking, but well, I appreciate um, the, the good review. Yeah, what you what you said about Jack and free practice. Also, I think talking to Simon, I had like two podcasts with him and he's as well like you give him a little bit and he starts talking about yeah, so yeah. much. He could also talk for hours and I really, really hope he would be more in the commentating role than in this track set role. Like when I watched the After the Flag, please tell me, why do you start it when there's 20 or 30 minutes left on the clock? What's the we reason? do that just so you get some live action. Um, okay. Obviously, we don't do the preseason test live like a full show like we did in Valencia. Um, mainly that's because like not all the camera equipment's there yet. You know, we take a limited amount of equipment for the tests and then everything is freighted later, closer to the time of the GP. Um, but we do it just so you can have some, some live footage. I think actually, because we spoke a lot about after the flag and like changes we could make to it. We did a small change for the final day and we showed a bit more like live track action in that first half an hour, the last 30 minutes of the, the session on the final day. And I think it looked a bit better, but that's like the main reason is just so you see a little bit of live action. Yeah. What annoys me that in this last 30 minutes of uh, test time, it seems like they're trying to find a spot for Simon where the bikes are the loudest and then put him there. <laughs> This is uh, the trouble. 
Yeah, I don't know if it was you or Simon, but I remember um, one of you were in the pit line uh, next to Yamaha and they went out for the practice starts. It was you? Yeah, yeah and all of a sudden you just hear the bike. So I, I mean, think this is a little bit unfortunate, but... Yeah, I like it's so fucking hard because the bikes are so yeah. loud and also like my voice is quite soft and it's not yeah. very loud naturally anyway. So like if I'm heard, I have to have the microphone right next to my to my mouth. Um so that's partly on me. I need to speak louder, but also like it's just a nightmare for the audio guys. Yes. Yeah. You know, if yeah, you have the mic imagine. sensitively way down, then you know you won't hear me as well. But if it's at a normal level, you just get drowned out by the bikes. So yeah. it's pretty tricky. I talked with uh, Simon about this a lot, and he says also it's like super tricky because you on one side you need to be in the pit lane to talk and to see with the guys yeah. in the paddock and find out information but then all of a sudden when you have to talk to the audience then it's uh, a little bit more difficult uh, to find a quiet spot and especially yeah. if bikes are flying by or if somebody wants to leave but i think a test would be the best setting to figure this one out to just do it after the test but you said about not covering the test i've read something that you could watch the winter tests for like 25 euros on the video pass i believe yeah so they do uh like an off-season deal so okay. you get like all of the um test that doesn't mean that it's like a live feed for the testing you know what okay. you see on atf is that's it um but yeah you just get all of video pass that covers all of the testing for a discounted price yeah that's all yeah but i think during a race um when they Uh, when they go to Simon and ask him for his opinion, I think it would be a much better scenario if it would be in the booth and maybe even have three people there. And if Simon, he said that he isn't really the commentator, he just likes to talk about what he sees and what the technical stuff. And yeah. you, I think you could find a pairing there that Simon sees the stuff that he sees and with his knowledge and all of a sudden uh, he has this super insightful story. And uh, you do this during free practice a lot, but uh, during the races, unfortunately not. So I think watching other sports, it's always great to have like a journalist commentating and mm -hmm. together with an expert. Like when you watch the NFL, they have now Tom Brady for the next season, I believe, at Fox. So stuff like this would be nice to have in MotoGP as well. Like, And Simon is so awesome to talk to. He knows so much. And uh, to just have him limited to let's say 30 seconds uh, we just asked simon about it i think doesn't really suit his skill set as well so mm -hmm. i see him more in the commentating booth because he's so um eloquent he's so insightful and uh, you should really give him the floor to bring this to the people because he's also super likable like i yeah, love yeah. to when when we did the podcast i was uh, sick and uh, therefore i didn't feel like talking too much and simon was the perfect uh, partner because i just asked him something and he elaborates and it's so interesting to just sit there and listen to him you know yeah no he's brilliant i mean he if you get him going on a subject he won't stop until you actually tell him to stop you know yeah. um and that for sure is like very well suited to commentary um But the thing with Simon as well is like he absolutely loves just being down in pit lane mm. and looking at the bikes like he's the same as me. We above everything else in MotoGP, we really get excited about like the bikes and how impressive they are and all this sort of stuff. So I think if the boss has ever like went to Simon, oh, we want to do a full time 
commentary role with you, he'd go, oh, hang on, like, I want to, when am I going to be in pit lane, you know? Um, yeah. So there's definitely that, like, but I mean, I, we'll see what they do this year. I don't know what the, the commentary plan is, but maybe if they put Simon on, on more, I'm sure a lot of people would be quite happy about it. Yeah, of course. And um, he's also very good at those interviews afterwards. Yeah. So, yeah, because I feel like Simon has also a very good balance between his own experience and his own opinion mm -hmm. and still being very respectful to the other guy yeah. and to, because he understands both sides. But is, for example, my favorite example is uh, when KTM said that they won't re-sign Remy in 2021. Mm -hmm. And Simon did, I believe, the perfect interview because he was really pressing Pete Byra on why, because he has the writer's perspective, but still was very, very polite and very structured in his interview. But he wouldn't let him slide uh, with some bullshit excuse, you know? That was uh, one of the best interviews I've ever heard in MotoGP because it's... Um, on one hand, like pressing the issue, on the other hand, not being a dick, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, we were actually speaking about, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, about like Simon and his role um, when we were in Qatar. We were just having dinner and we were chatting about it with the guys. Um, and he was saying like, obviously he got to 49, 50 years old and had knew nothing about the journalist world, you know? And he had to learn it all on the job. Like in his first year when he came in, people hated him because... You know, they I remember. Like, what is this guy like? He's, he's not a good journalist and ask good questions and ask the right questions, all this sort of stuff. Um, and now everyone loves him because he's learned so much about what it is to be a journalist. But you still get that natural trait of him, where primarily his main viewpoint is as a rider. Um, and then even then, like after being a rider, he was an Olympics technician and all this sort of stuff. So he knows like kind of two of the three sides in the paddock, like the worker, the rider, and now he knows the journalist. So he kind of has all three now. So when you give him a situation like, as you said, with Remy, when he was dumped by KTM, he goes from the rider perspective, then he goes from like kind of the team perspective or the organization perspective. But then he also at the same time, like now he's learned that what he should expect from an answer. And if he doesn't get it, he goes again, you know, like he's, he's done pretty well at like such a old age, old 50 is not old. But at an older age to just learn a lot about a world that he had no idea about until he was that age. I remember in Silverstone during Moto 2 practice, you had Sean Dylan Kelly in the booth. It was before all this American racing drama went down. Yeah. And I really thought maybe he also has a future because he's very eloquent uh, and it yeah, seemed he like great, he was. Uh, I talked to him about it and he thought, oh, yeah, uh, I wasn't doing this well. So. Yeah, but um, I thought he was great and I really could see him having like a future in there if he doesn't mm -hmm. want to go racing anymore. And like especially in the second half of the season where he wasn't on the grid. I mean, he had those races with forward when Eskrieg was injured, I believe. Yeah. Then um, I believe it was a little bit of a missed opportunity to not quickly get him into the commentary job when he had nothing to do at... Uh, at the races like he wasn't going to race there were no other series where he could race and now obviously he's in motor america but uh if you could get him back one day it would be nice because he was very good and also insightful to have like a rider who did it recently you know yeah 
Yeah, no, he was definitely really good. He was actually really nervous about it beforehand. It was quite funny. Obviously. Like he was, yeah, you don't really think that a rider would be nervous just about talking about bikes. You know, we're going to ask them questions about them, about their team, about riding. So like it's bread and butter for them. But he was really nervous. Um, it was quite funny. But yeah, he did a great job, like really great job, as you say. Insightful, spoke really well. He's a really, really nice guy. Um, yeah, but I guess that probably after the whole thing kicked off of American racing and then scrambling to get the forward ride for three rounds and then all that, I bet he was just all over the place, like yeah. going and meeting different people to to see what he was going to do for next year. Yeah, um, that's that's also true. I mean, it could have confused him maybe to have like a new thing immediately to do and yeah, not focusing on either side correctly because his head is all over the place, understandably. So, yeah. I don't know, but maybe in the future. We'll see. When when he retires, we'll ask him. Yeah, good. <laughs> It'll be a few years yet. <laughs> Hopefully you don't lose him to Motor America uh, commentary. No, well, it'd be interesting to actually see how he goes in Motor America because obviously then if he does really well on a superbike, like we saw obviously Garrett Gerloff come across from there a few years ago to World Superbike and, you know, World SBK at the minute is kind of becoming a more popular avenue for a lot of riders, so... Yeah, if he's good there, then why not? We'll maybe see him over there in a few years. He was in the 600 class before he moved to Moto2, right? And he was uh, a yes. champion there, right? Yeah, in Moto America, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then he went to Moto2, and now he's on the 1000cc yeah. bike. Right? I think right. he's riding a BMW, or I'm not okay. too sure. In the same team as Bobier? I really wouldn't know. Um, I can't remember what it was. But I'm pretty sure it's a BMW, but I don't think it's the same team as Bobier because I think he's got uh, PJ Jacobson as his teammate. Okay. I'm excited for World Superbike uh, as we talked about it because now uh, it's Phillip Island this weekend, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And with Toprak doing good at the tests and Jonathan Ray on the Yamaha, yeah. I have a little bit... I'm a little bit afraid that we get all this excitement. Yeah, it's going to be so wild. And then first weekend Bautista just smokes everybody by 20 seconds again I mean there's there's definitely a possibility for it but I don't think that'll happen I'm, I'm no, actually I worried about the other Ducati Bulliger he looks incredible like really yes. really strong but when I learned one thing that is rookies don't um, when when you get somebody on a bike who is very very fast immediately I think it's because they're incredibly talented, but there's still so much more to having a successful season that you will yes. see those glimpses of greatness at some mm -hmm. point, maybe even in Phillip Island when he tested there. But to keep it up consistently over the whole season will be very, very difficult. Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, last year he was consistent in World Supersport, but you know that's 100 and. 40 horsepower compared to I think the superbikes now have 260 ish you know so yeah. we'll see how it goes but so far he's been like pretty flawless in testing actually yeah. the other one obviously top rack is very exciting like my dad mm. works for BMW and I was speaking to him the other night after the test and he said like he's incredible you know just the way he rides the bike and gets the lap time out of it is phenomenal so yeah we'll see I don't know I, I did have Johnny down as like my preseason prediction. Like before the first test, I said to my friend Kiko Giles, who works for World Superbike, um, I was like, 
I'm going Johnny. I think Johnny's going to be world champ on the Yamaha. But now that the testing is over, I'm suddenly thinking, oof, might be top rack, you know, he might do it. You know who I'm going to pick? <laughs> You're going to go Remy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello there. <laughs> yeah, no but surprise. You remember Pedro when he tested the Moto2 bike for the first time? In yeah, Portimao, and in that immediately test, uh, broke the lap record, I believe. And then first four or five races, uh, he had one mistake every uh, every race, I believe. I mean, he he had this um, first lap incident in Qatar, and uh, he crashed in America. I don't know what he did in Argentina, but like it really started to pick up after Mugello and his win. Then yeah. you could see things starting to go together, and I think it's the same with Bulega. Yeah, I mean, let's see. It's going to be interesting for sure. Same with Paco now. You know, he had such a great test that it almost feels too good. You know, well, it was the same as as last year. He had an incredible test season, and then obviously crashed in Argentina, then crashed again in America, and then it all seemed to be okay for a while, and then it started to unravel a little bit. But the GP23 was obviously too stable, so is the <laughs> four, 24 yet uh, less stable? Well, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to know. <laughs> so, yeah, I talked with uh, Simon about the 24 bike after Valencia, and after in Valencia, they obviously just tested the engine. And uh, he said basically to summarize it, the uh, 21 engine was very good with power delivery like uh, the 22 engine apparently had this issue that it was too aggressive and yeah. uh, the reel started spinning and also this moment where you start to initiate the throttle it would kick uh, the rear tire out because it yeah. was too aggressive mm -hmm. but it had a lot of horsepower so this was a good part and obviously as we all know they dumped it and rolled the 21 engine in 22 and 23, they had a more balanced engine, which was uh, better, but they had some issues with braking. And it looks like the 24 engine is now the perfect combination out of these three engines. It's smooth, it's good under braking, has a lot of power. And is there any downsides now that um, we discovered in Malaysia and Qatar? I don't think there's any major like red flag to it. No, like as you say, the 21 engine seemed to be like pretty sweet. It was very nice, and the 22 was a bit too aggressive, and 23 they had the, the trouble with the inertia on the engine braking. Um, the 24 seems to be pretty like spot on. There's no real major problem. I mean, one interesting thing was uh, Jorge Martin on the second day in Qatar said that he suddenly started suffering with lots of chatter. Um, chatter is a problem that you get. Uh, from the rear of the bike but then it, it feels like the whole bike is kind of like there's this kind of juddering sensation um and generally i think on braking but i'm not 100 percent sure anyway or you can get it uh, coming out the corner as well um but then we heard a couple of other small comments nothing that was like as clear cut as jorge like jorge said on the and the day two in Qatar that like it was a difficult day because of it, like a real big problem with chatter and it kind of came out of nowhere. But in Bastinini, I forget if it was day one in Qatar or, or the last day in Sepang, I can't remember now, but he said uh, they had a small vibration from the rear. And when he said that, I kind of like didn't really think anything of it because he said small vibration. And you're like, okay, nothing too much, you know, maybe just a, a setting thing that they need to figure out. Um, so then when you hear 
Martine saying, oh, yeah, we had this big problem with chatter. You're like, okay, where's this coming from? You know, is it setup or is it related to engine or maybe just, uh, I don't know, something with a tire? Um, so, yeah, tricky. Uh, it doesn't seem as though there's a problem, but maybe there's something just to keep an eye on there if this problem does resurface again. And, you know, even if you hear, like, Peko complain about it. But so far, I mean, like, the 24 engine, for one, it's helped Bastianini a ton. Like, he looks unreal again. You know, like, looks like that 22 Bastianini. You wouldn't be surprised if he goes to Qatar for the first race and wins it because he looks incredible. Like, And the big thing that's impressive with Venea is he seems to have really improved on the time attack because he always struggled with that. And obviously, everyone's talking about Peko doing a 30.9, but Venea was, uh, sorry, a 50.9. In Qatar, but Anea was literally there at a 51 flat right behind him. And they both did that lap. Like I was looking at the analysis from their run plan um, on day two. And throughout the day, they were just doing like small little race runs, you know, like kind of five or six laps, whatever, checking different settings and trying different things and whatever. And then as soon as they went, right, let's go for a time attack lap, they both just did it on the first lap. Like no problem. Like it was easy. So that's pretty scary on its own the fact that they go out and just first lap no problem click into gear and be a second quicker than they've gone all day you know so pretty scary um and it'll be very interesting to see what Anea can do in the long race because the big thing with him when he was on the 19 bike in his rookie year and then also when he got on the 21 in 2022 was he was really good with conserving the rear tire um and that was something that actually in Sepang, we heard that maybe there were some complaints about struggling a little bit with rear grip with the the new Ducati later in the in the longer runs. Um, so we'll see. Actually, it was Anaya that mainly commented about that rear grip feeling. Peko actually said that the rear grip wasn't so bad towards the end of his long run. So we'll see. But I think Anaya is going to surprise some people. Hopefully, he will be back because. It would be awesome to have a fight between Paco and Inea, the yeah. one we anticipated uh, since the announcement that he moves to the factory team. And uh, also with Jorge Martin in the mix, it's going to be very, very interesting. Yeah, And sure. it looks like those three will battle it out. And all of them have the new fairing. Like the mm -hmm. old fairing was one of those downwash ducts where yeah. the air that comes from the front gets... Uh, pushed down and uh, apparently this was very good for maneuverability in the corners and was good for top speed and last season Jorge Martin had this belly pan which obviously is the ground effect thing and um, sucks the bike to the ground but makes it more heavy from side to side and it looks like now they found a hybrid thing of both like they still have those downwash ducts mm -hmm. and they have this belly pants. So what's the understanding of the new fairing? How does it behave? Where are the strong points? Where are the weak points? So yeah, you like it's basically just the best of both worlds, as you say. Um, the downwash ducks, like what we understand from them is that they work at a, a larger range of speeds and a larger range of um, lean angle. So one thing that was really interesting, actually, if you go back to the Valencia test at the end of 22, when Ducati first tried their big side fairings, the big bulged out ones. Um, I remember Pecco like multiple times trying to break and turn into the corner with those side fairings on when he was testing, you know, without the downwash ducts and he kept struggling to get it turned into the corner. 
So, you know, probably the downwash ducks maybe dry, provide a little bit more drag and just help them to kind of turn into the corner a little bit better and, and get it stopped for those tight ones. Um, and he like instantly preferred just the downwash ducks over the side fairings. Obviously, Jorge and Johan Zarco last year ran the big side fairings for most of the year until the update came out from Silverstone onwards and then Martin switched to the downwash ducks again. Um, and so the other thing is those down, uh, the side fairings, the big ground effect ones, um, they were a bit like all or nothing. They worked really, really well in the middle of the corner as they're meant to because how they work is by, you know, only leaving a small gap between the road surface and the surface of the fairing. So then they kind of create a low pressure area and that's what pulls the bike into the ground. But with that, the faster you go, the better they work. So maybe in the slow corners, you know, you don't really have enough speed or enough time to get the effect of them that that strongly. But then in the faster corners, they really, really work well. So then what they've done is just paired them together, get the best of both worlds. The downwash ducks work a little bit better at all lean angles and all speeds. And then you still have the real strong effect of those side fairings when you're in the faster corners lent over all the way. So, um yeah, quite interesting. Jorge Martin actually said initially that he didn't get on with the new fairing, didn't like it. And then he seemed to kind of make steps and progress each day. I think it was the last day of Sepang where he was really like, okay, we've made a step forward here. I like it. It's definitely better than last year's fairing. Um, but then even in Qatar, apparently there was whispers that he initially was like, oh, I'm not sure about the feeling on the first day. But then by the end of it, the end of the test, he was definitely like, yeah, no, the fairing's good. So um yeah pretty big progress i mean for sure it must have helped a lot because the lap times those three guys on the 24 bikes are doing are impressive it looks like the the downwash ducts could complement the ground effect area like when you imagine that there's a low pressure area which sucks the bike to the ground and then you wash the air which is coming from the front out before it even reaches that that there could be a higher low pressure area yeah so i think this could be a very very interesting thing to maybe we see at a Aprilia in a ktm soon i mean for sure i mean ktm actually already did this idea of the best of both worlds <laughs> they yeah They did it, but they did it, in my opinion, in a very stupid way because the ducts were rubbing on the road and then you had holes inside of it. So it kind yeah, of lost yeah. its purpose. Yeah, they were pretty low. And yeah, as you yeah. say, some of them did get damaged. But, It's uh, probably the F1 engineers when they forgot that a bike has lean angles. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'd hope not. But <laughs> anyway, you got to ask the question. Um, yeah. But uh, back to Ducati, um, we talked about a new chassis, which is developed mm -hmm. by Michele Piro. And um, in Misano, I believe we talked about this. And I haven't heard anything since. Is there any updates with the new chassis? Have um, they thrown it into the bin? Well, yeah. From what we've seen, it looks like maybe it has been thrown into the bin. But this chassis it's really different like and it's been a work in progress for i think the first time i saw it was in 2021 um at the barcelona test so it's been a long time um yeah it's quite different it's got like a, a load of cutout areas and you would look at it and think how is this thing even kind of strong enough you know to sustain the forces but obviously it is um yeah we we didn't see it at all 
during Sepang and Qatar test. I mean, or at least we didn't see it. Maybe it was out there for a very, very brief run and it was was tested once, but I, I don't believe it was. I think it's gone. Um, perhaps it's gone behind the scenes and they're like completely reworking it and maybe we'll see it appear again with Piro at a test uh, during the season, but I don't think it will, to be honest. In terms of chassis stuff, the only thing that I saw was back in Valencia. They had two very, very minorly different chassis, literally just where the swing arm pivot is, just at the back of uh, the chassis. If you look from the bike behind, there's some small cutouts in the cross section and they're like hollow, um, only a small, small area. Uh, but literally like the only thing that changed was like there was two small cutouts in one and in the other it was slightly bigger but overall a little bit smaller like minimal minimal thing it's very interesting because i talked with uh, simon about it and he asked tadozi and tadozi apparently said that it's the same bike just the engine is new as the 23 and uh Yeah, I was under the impression that uh, Ducati only tested the new engine in Sepang. Uh, not in Sepang, in Valencia, I'm sorry. Well, I, I have the photos of the, the different chassis. So, um, I mean, like, when you say different chassis, literally every single thing, like 99.9% of the chassis looks the exact same, apart from these two very small things. So, I mean, you can kind of forgive him for saying that they're uh, not really testing anything because it probably made no difference. So. Um, going back one year to the GP23, mm-hmm. why are those riders at the moment a lot faster than they were in, uh, than Peko basically and Jorge Martin were last year on the GP23? Is it just that conditions now are better in Malaysia and Qatar, or are there different reasons? Um, definitely conditions, yeah, like whenever we go testing obviously it's you know it's it's an open pit lane for eight hours during the day so you have eight hours of track time where that's putting down rubber and in sepang we didn't have any rain apart from the first day i think there was like a small little bit of rain in the afternoon on the first day but not even much like it it was fine um so you literally had like three days where there's just constant michelin rubber going down on the track and whenever you have that build up of michelin rubber It just makes the track so much grippier than what it is when you first go. So you get a lot more track time in a test day than you would do in a regular day in a GP weekend. Um, and then obviously with more rubber down, more grip, the track conditions are much faster. You know, They were saying that probably in Sepang, the track conditions were between half a second and three quarters of a second faster than what you would have in a GP weekend. So there's that. And the same then in Qatar, we reckon it was kind of three, four tenths quicker. Uh, maybe half a second faster in Qatar. So definitely that. The other side of it will be just because they have the same bike doesn't mean they're doing the same stuff electronically as last year. You know, there'll be small things that Ducati will have learned with that bike. And now they understand, and particularly after testing with the 24 and testing electronic things with that, they'll go, ah, oh, let's try this with the old bike and see if it also works better. So there'll be improvements from there. And for sure, the bikes now with what they've learned and they're testing electronically are faster or can go faster than what they did in 23. But yeah, it's the same bike. It's just they've learned a bit more and, and track conditions are much better. When you look at the GP24, it would be a wrong conclusion to say that it's 0.8 uh, seconds faster because of conditions and all of the stuff. When you read something that Peko was 
eight tenths uh, under the world uh, under the lab record. So, what do you think? How much did the GP twenty three is behind the GP twenty four at the moment? Hard to know. Um, I mean, Digi's doing a pretty good job. He's fairly close in terms of lap times to throughout the whole test through to what the 24 guys are doing obviously mark was the highest gp23 in qatar and what was he? he was about four tenths off i think so there you go there's a relatively clear visualization but also we know that mark isn't at the pinnacle of what he can do with that bike just yet i think it's it's kind of impossible to say how much faster the bike is because it all depends on the rider depends on the day depends on the setup all this sort of stuff I mean, if it's two tenths faster, like, you know, if you had the same rider do an absolute 100% perfect lap on each bike, and if it's two tenths quicker, the 24, I'd be surprised, you know? Um, so I think the actual improvement in terms of maybe outright speed is minimal, but what you'll have is just a bike that's easier to ride and easier to do the lap time, you know? And that's where it makes a difference with long runs and, and all that sort of stuff. And it looks like the GP24 isn't breaking down all the time. So <laughs> is uh, Ducati just giving Mark the old parts they don't need anymore? Give him crash parts and that's why the bike's breaking <laughs> no. down all the time? Are well. they trying to sabotage his off-season so Peko remains world champion? Well, technically by definition, yeah, they have given him the old parts they don't need anymore. They've, they've given him last year's bike that no longer is required. But on a serious, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no Are they using the same engines? The, the engines that ran all season or built their new engines? I presume there have been new engines that they built. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll be fresh. Um, you know, what, what do they have? Is it... How many engines do they have a year? Six? I think it's six engines, right? Or eight, something like that. Eight engines or, or something. Um, yeah, they'll, they'll be brand new, fresh out of the factory engines, yeah. So okay. don't worry, they haven't already done 5,000 Ks now. So. I was wondering this uh, during the tests, um, how? And yeah, but um, what's the reason behind Mark's troublesome off-season? In terms of the technical issues? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the reason we don't know, like we asked him what the technical issues were, and he just said, oh, it's normal, like small little technical glitch. And it was fine. The team just... Uh, reset the bike and then it was okay and that's the truth like it was a very very minor issue that they literally just had to to do we presume like Crayfar was was saying to me he reckons that it's probably just a warning light that popped up on the dash and he just limp loaded it home back around to the garage and they they checked everything that was okay and they went okay it's fine and just reset and then go again um I don't think there's really anything to read into it like we see bikes have technical issues all the time but it is interesting that You know, we haven't seen the 24 guys have any technical issues and then Mark has, I think he had three of them during testing. So, uh, but yeah, I wouldn't say there's anything to be worried about there. We will see uh, during the race weekends. Mm -hmm. One thing um, that is interesting actually about like Mark's machinery and equipment he has is the fact that Ducati have given all the 23 riders, it's not just Mark, this is both riders in Grassini and both riders in VR46, they all have the start of season 23 spec. I was very surprised at that because I thought they would just get Peko's bike from Valencia, you know? Um, the only thing that's different is the upgrade they did midway through the year. They upgraded the tail unit, they added the fork wings, um, and the downwash ducts got bigger. But 
I was very surprised to see that like none of them had it. I thought that they would have it in Sepang and then they didn't. Um, so then I thought, oh, maybe they'll just give it to them in Qatar for the last day. Maybe they're like, they still need to actually manufacture enough parts to, to do for four bikes. But no, they don't have it. They still are with the start of season 23 spec. Um, what you can read into that, you can read into it what you want, whether it's Ducati being clever and just making sure their factory riders have a bit more, you know, of a material advantage over the satellite ones. And fair enough, they're, they're within their right to do that. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was interesting. The fact that Mark Marquez was getting on it and then they're getting the start of season 23 spec rather than the end of season. I remember us talking about the Marcus situation before it was announced. Obviously, it was announced very late in the season. And uh, my whole argument was always Ducati doesn't need Marcus. He provides no positive benefit to them. They're probably winning <laughs> probably like sponsorship and... Um, and attention but then again he's more association associated with grisini now than ducati because it's mm. a customer team you know and um they have three riders now on the gp24 who are the three top uh, favorites uh, for the world championship and my argument was that they're making themselves more problems than good with allowing grisini to sign mark because they're obviously are now i would say five alpha dogs in ducati with enea peko jorge martin marco bezeki and mark marcus mm -hmm. and you could make an argument for digia uh, being in the mix and maybe alex marcus with frankie it's difficult to judge at the moment yeah, yeah but very. could this be an issue that technically everything is fine ducati has the perfect bike perfect riders Uh, they should win out that this hierarchy thing within Ducati kind of sabotages their performance on race weekends as the season progresses, as the championship uh, progresses and those little games start and intensify over the season. Do you think there is some conflict potential there that could seriously hurt Ducati? Um difficult to say I, i don't think they could seriously hurt them no um because if you are the ducati board you know looking at your motor gp presence um and you see that you have five alpha dogs uh, on ducatis and five well i mean realistically once frankie's up to speed essentially you have eight ducatis all with riders that could win a race um you know like one benefit this year having mark is that instead of mark occasionally nicking a podium off a ducati rider now it's mark on a ducati nicking a podium off another ducati rider so there's there's that benefit there that there's just kind of this ducati whitewash uh what you will have is obviously they set themselves up for a bit of a headache at the end of the year or midway through the year when they have to decide where those riders are going to be in their ducati lineup for 2025 um I don't think it's necessarily damaging to them to have Mark in there. Not at all. Uh, obviously, the benefits are performance-wise. You know, Mark is without a doubt going to go and get a bunch of podiums this year, win a bunch of races, uh, most likely fight for a title. I mean, he's literally the odds-on favorite level with Peko. I was checking today just to, out of curiosity to see what the, the betting odds are, and he was level with Peko. 
which was interesting. Um, so there's definitely performance benefits there. You know, there's another win that Ducati could potentially pick up. And then financially, you know, Mark's supporters will all of a sudden transfer from being Honda fans to Ducati fans and all this sort of stuff. So there's definitely that. But yeah, I mean, it's whether Ducati seriously look at the prospect of putting Mark into the factory team in 25. Um, because for one, you already have Jorge Martin, who's pissed off that he didn't get the factory seat when Enea Bassinini was given it. Uh, and you also have the other thing of they set themselves up for, I think what most people would look at, the slightly embarrassing scenario where a satellite bike beats the factory bike to the title. Is that embarrassing for Ducati? I think most fans would say yeah. But for them, like if you're looking at it from a brand perspective, it's great in a sense. It's also not great in another sense. So there's there's some problems to having Mark Marquez in the team for sure. But I mean, it might not even be Mark that challenges Peko for the title. Like could be Jorge Martin again, or could be Bezeki again, or it could be even Didier. Because some people think Didier, I mean, I think Didier this year is going to be a real a real pain in the ass for the factory guys. Um, he's looking really good, you know. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, the interesting thing is what Mark does in 25, and that will determine how much of a headache Ducati have. Yeah. I was going to ask you if you think it would be more damaging to Ducati if Mark on a Honda gets a podium here or there, or if Mark on a satellite Ducati, which is one year older, which is important, I think, um, wins the championship and not Paco. Um, more damaging to Ducati. You'd probably say that Mark winning the title on a old bike is more damaging, but then it it's really tricky because then it's also like, well, um, Ducati can spin it on its head as a positive and be like, yeah, look at how great our bikes are. Even the one that's a year old can still win a championship. Um, yeah, it would be. I don't think it'd be damaging to Ducati. I think it'd be damaging to Peko, you know? That's um, true. Peko, by the way, Peko, I think, is brilliant. Loads of people underrate him, and I think he's truly one of the best riders that we've seen in quite some time. And um, he started to be funny. <laughs> yeah. He used yeah. to be fucking boring yeah. and hard to listen to when he was uh, saying the bike was too stable and stuff. But did you ask him uh, how did he do it uh, yeah. after his? Yeah. And he said, yeah, I cut corner three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's actually like quite a yeah. funny guy. Like he's got a dry sense of humor, you know. Um, and he's a really, really nice guy as well. Like for me, who's quite fresh to go into the races and all this sort of stuff. He's really personable and nice to you when you go for interview and all this. Um, so you kind of want him to do well because of that. But I think the other side with Peko is he when he won the first championship, he kind of had half a season that was brilliant. And the first half was like, this guy maybe isn't up to the task. Um, and so you were like, okay, he's won the title, but a lot of questions remain. Um, then last year when he won the title again, You could look at it and say there are a lot of questions or you could look at it and say he almost got his legs broken by KTM. And still, if you go and look at like the 
um, the Wikipedia sheet with just the the scores laid out, the finishes laid out in front of you. His season looks so impressive still because he's on the podium every fucking time, and he almost had no legs. <laughs> like, um, so you could say that there's a huge thing there with overcoming difficult situations, remaining calm, and just dragging out the results when he needs. And yeah. he did that while he wasn't feeling great with the bike as well. But then the other big question that still remained was everyone last year was like, right, Jorge Martin is without a doubt the fastest guy in MotoGP on one lap. I mean, we'll see this year with how Mark goes on the Ducati when he gets a qualifying lap in, when he's got a toe in front of him. Because he always Do finds, you think like, he will still go for the toe with the Ducati? I think early on he will, he will look for it because okay. he'll be learning still how to do it. You know, okay. he'll be learning still how to do that lap time. But then I think eventually we'll see him go back to how he was on the Honda where he just doesn't give a fuck. And he just rolls out and goes for a lap. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of questions with, right, you know, next year if Jorge Martin can find the consistency, he's going to blow Peko out of the water because he's just outright faster. But Peko now seems to have improved in just his outright speed. Like the laps he's done in testing, okay, as we were saying, you know, the, the lap time is kind of irrelevant. You shouldn't look at the lap time, but it's how he did the lap time. He did it so comfortably. Like both times he just rolled out one lap done, no mistakes. And that's something that he maybe didn't do at the start of 23 through 22, all that sort of stuff. So he's still learning and getting better, which I think is why I think in the next few years he'll really prove himself to be one of the best we've seen in a while. I think if Peko wasn't so incredibly stupid with his five crashes every damn season, I mean, crashes like India, like Argentina and like America were crashes where he simply got too comfortable from my position else, as far as I can judge it, where he had no pressure from behind, he had uh, everything under control, And then crash. Obviously, stuff like um, Catalonia and uh, Le Mans happens, I would say. But uh, those other three crashes were more or less inexcusable. And if he didn't do this for the last two seasons, then I think the perception of him would be different because he would yeah. have won the championship by three or four races, I would say. Yeah, I mean, if you count up all the crashes, you know, how many points did he throw away? A huge amount. So And there's uh, good positions every time, you know? Yeah, yeah. And But then on the flip side of it, you can say about Jorge Martin with his slightly slower start to the year and then some mistakes later in the year. Um, you know, how many points did he throw away? So it's all, a you know, six of one and half a dozen the other type job. But for sure, that's the single biggest question mark, as you rightly say. Like, Peko has to iron out these mistakes that cost him generally 25 points at a time. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, if he can do that, like he'll be really hard to beat. And also the thing is like, you can beat Jorge Martin and I think Peko is, when he isn't stupid, he's extremely smart in a race situation. Mm -hmm. When he's under pressure, he always makes good decisions. He is uh, very, very good in battle. He manages the race very well. So I think um, Peko really is smarter than everybody, maybe except somebody like Mark. Yeah. Um, when it comes to racecraft, also Inea is very smart. But um, 
The last time we saw Mark on a competitive bike was in 2019. And then he was flawless except for one race. And every race, I believe he was first or second. Maybe third, but... Yeah, no, I first guess and second would, every race. Yeah, first and second, right? And um, if we put him on a Ducati and uh, Peko is crashing so much again, then we might look at a scenario where Mark is gone because Mark, the last time I checked, didn't do those mistakes. We don't know how older Mark Marquez with his body and all of the stuff manages over a full season. We don't know. Yeah. But um, yeah, it will be interesting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we'll see, as you say, how Mark does... I think that's a good point uh, to point out about, you know, his body is so much different now and he rides in a different way. And obviously he's learning to ride in a different way again on the Ducati. Um, but absolutely, if Mark can still do that and be on the podium every single weekend and just be there all the time, like, you know, if Peko is the same Peko as he was in 23 and 22 and 21, Mark will blow him out of the water if Mark is fast enough to be on the podium every time. Um, I mean, I, that's the I, thing. You don't have to be fast fast enough. You just have to be consistent. And then yeah. it will equal each other out, you know. Well, it's like Jorge Martin, you know, like some of the inconsistency we saw with him, uh, particularly his mistakes, is because I think like he doesn't handle his emotions as well as Pecco does. And it was quite good to see from Jorge that even on the Sunday night, um, straight away in his interviews after losing the title in Valencia, he was immediately like, I have to work on um, being more mature. And I took that as he needs to learn how to handle his emotions better in high stress scenarios. Because you would always, throughout that like charge where he was closing up to Peko and it was going down to the wire, he would come out and nail one race. But then the next race, he'd mess up and he'd do it again. Nail one race, mess up. Nail one race, mess up. Like his sprint in Valencia was a masterclass. It was fucking brilliant. But then you go to the race and he overcommits too early. Like it, the incident in Valencia where he went wide at turn one when he clipped the back of Peko, he doesn't need to be that close. The reason why I think he was that close is because at the corner before at the last turn, Peko went slightly wide. And so did Martin actually got sucked in because he obviously just braked at the same point as Peko. But he didn't go as wide. So he kind of probably saw like, oh shit, here's my opening. Like I can get in front of him. And that's fair enough, but it was like lap three and he's going in and he knows because he's ride, riding MotoGP bikes for the last however many years, he knows that if he's right behind a bike on the brakes, he's going to get sucked in because he doesn't have all the downforce on the wings. And he's still committed to that and put himself in that scenario for it to go wrong. And it did go wrong, you know, and I think if it was on the other foot and Peko was behind, I just think his maturity and staying calm in those situations he might not have done that same mistake not saying that like he absolutely wouldn't have he might have still done the same mistake for sure but i think it was higher probability that if it was peko that wouldn't have happened and he would have gone through that corner fine do you know who my dark horse for qatar is well if it's not pedro <laughs> no actually not i have my opinion on his rookie season mm -hmm. but uh we will talk about him later it's actually aprilia Because oh, yeah. my, obviously the clear favorite is Ducati, but my dark horse is Aprilia because 
we don't know how the track conditions develop in Qatar from now on to the race. There's yeah. apparently a lot of car racing going on there. Yeah, yeah. And it's the desert with all the sand. And if it happened to be a situation where the track was extremely low in grip, maybe a lot of sand, you don't know how the wind develops over the next month. There could be so there could be even rain in Qatar, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Do you remember this uh, Monday night race in Qatar? Because on Sunday, yeah, it, yeah. yeah, like Stuff 2009 like this. or whatever year yeah. it was. Stuff like this could happen. And Aprilia is very, very good in those low grip. Uh, races like Catalonia so I think Aprilia is very very mm, they have like a niche special um, specialty 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 that's the word a niche specialty where they aren't as consistent as uh, other manufacturers but when the conditions are perfect Aprilia is unbeatable yeah and uh They have this new arrow, with, which is apparently very, very good for Alej and not too good for Maverick. But mm -hmm. I think if all stars align, Aprilia could do very well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you look at Alej's pace throughout testing, really impressive and very, very close to the top Ducatis, you know, um, with like just absolutely a dark horse, like, as you say. The thing that worries me with Aprilia is that we often see them do really well in preseason testing and then they kind of disappear in the in the races when we come down to crunch time. Um, whether that's going to happen again, I don't know. The thing that you say about them with being very good on low-grip tracks, that's going to be interesting to watch if that's still the case because the bike has changed quite a lot with the aero this year. Um, and they said that the balance of bike or balance of the bike has changed significantly, and that's meant they have to set it up different ways and all this sort of stuff. So, if it means that still the bike is incredibly good in low grip conditions, and they've done very well to retain the character of the bike while changing the way it rides a lot, um, but I don't necessarily think that it's 100% going to be the same story. Uh, And if it's not, then that's good because they need to change it anyway. Like they can't just have a bike that works extremely well in low grip and then isn't as good when the grip is medium or high. So we'll see what happens with Aprilia. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, as you say, Aleish is like, yeah, bike's great. Clear step forward from 2023 um, suits me really well. And then you've got Maverick on the other hand that's like, oh, I'm struggling, you know, lack of feeling. And then Miguel Oliveira too, confirming what Maverick's saying with lack of feeling and Uh, didn't have the rear grip. But then in Qatar, we saw Maverick slowly figure it out. Maverick, by the end of Qatar test, was looking a lot better and looking a bit more like his normal self. And actually, his runs were pretty close to what Aleish was doing. So, you know, good. And his lap time was close to Aleish, his, his, um, his qualifying sim. So not bad. Then Miguel Oliveira also, once he did the same thing as Maverick and switched back to the 2023 tail unit and got rid of that big underseat diffuser. And halfway through day two, he figured it out as well. They found the problem and they were like, okay, we're actually you know, calm now because we found the problem. We know what it was and we've kind of rectified it, but we just didn't have enough testing time to really then go and build on it and, and find the pace that we need. So it pretty look all right. They do look okay, but... There's a big kind of, you know, question mark above the head about whether they'll actually translate it from testing to racing. 
But weren't the Aprilia guys very good at the first day in Qatar or the first hours in Qatar when the grip was pretty low? I mean, it's it's so hard to judge that because they were like the first few laps that were going in in Qatar were like six, seven seconds off the lap record. Okay. Um, I think the only thing you can say is that throughout it, fairly consistently, Aleish was like towards the top of the timesheets. So... Yeah, probably in the lower grip conditions, they still look all right. But we don't know until we go to a track that naturally has low grip. Like the surface in Qatar is actually very, very grippy. It's just the sand that gets on it that makes it low grip. So when we go to a race like Barcelona again, then we'll know. Okay. What's up with Aprilia that they didn't manage to bring the new engine for two years in a row now to the tests? I remember us talking after Portimao where they didn't bring the new engine and you said, okay, they will just plug it in and it won't be much of a different engine than the 22 engine. Now, same story. They didn't bring the engine to all three tests we had so far. And apparently it's not a big step forward from the old engine, just small things apparently. So A, what's up with Aprilia that they don't bring the new engines to the tests? Why can't they build them in time? And B, are small steps enough to close the gap to Ducati? Um, I'll answer the small steps thing first. Uh, are small steps enough to close the gap? I mean... It depends on the size of the steps that Ducati take. As long as your steps are slightly bigger than them, then it'll be fine. Um, I do think small steps, yeah, they are the, you know, you can close the gap to Ducati by just doing small steps. It depends where those small steps are in which areas. If you take a small step in, I don't know, uh, your rear grip will make a big difference. But if you take a small step maybe your fuel management or something like that, you know, the efficiency engine won't make a massive difference. Um, so it depends where those are. The thing that's a little bit confusing about this new engine is that the official line we have is, no, the new engine isn't there. It'll be there in the first race. But then in one of the interviews I did with Maverick in Qatar, he literally said, oh, we're struggling with a new engine, the torque delivery. So I'm, I'm quite confused. Uh, I don't know if the... Webs the um, interviews on the website or not on MotoGP.com? Maybe it is. Um, so yeah, I don't know like if the new engine is there or not now. Like I'm quite confused. You would presume that like surely they would want to test with the new engine, but then if they haven't, then obviously it's the same as last year where they know that the new engine is very similar. It's just maybe a little bit more power and in some area, um, and that it's fine that when they plug it into the bike for the first race, they won't feel like a change in character so that's fair enough if it's like that that it's not a different character the engine then like yeah okay it's it's still a little bit of a uh, a strange thing to not test it before going but they will have obviously done all the dyno runs and they'll know exactly how that engine works and the character it has um so they're pretty much prepared to just plug it in they know it's going to be okay um but yeah weird i don't know so i really don't know if they tried the new engine or not um after what maverick said I have two quick questions for you. Did they solve the heat issues? I mean, weren't no, didn't no, or we don't know. No, so they did. Um, 
I guess you would have seen in Sepang, they did a, a run in the middle of the day, I think day two or day one, whichever day it was, um, where all three 24s went out together. So Miguel, Maverick and Alation, they were all following each other. Uh, they said that, no, the, the heat issue wasn't solved. They made slight, slight improvements, but no, it's still, the heat issue is too much. And what's up with the current chassis from Aprilia? Uh, not sure. We didn't see it, or at least I didn't see it. Um, the thing is, obviously, Ralph Hernandez crashed on day one in Sepang and broke his pelvis and his hip, and he got those three fractures. Um, so whether Savadori was going to test with a test team during the days in Sepang or not, we, I don't know. I don't think he was planning to, but maybe he would have done some runs. Um, but then, obviously, Savadori went on and tested on Raul's 23 bike for the whole of the Sepang test. So perhaps they had a plan to test with the carbon chassis with Savadori on the test team bike, but maybe that got thrown out of the window after Raul's crash. But at least on the factory bikes, we didn't see the, the carbon chassis at all. The last time we've seen it was in Valencia when Savadori was testing there. I would like to talk to you about my favorite topic ever, Pedro Acosta. <laughs> and uh, I would like to uh, like to tell you about some quotes I've heard. Mm -hmm. And after Sepang, Brad Binder said, this is the best off-season we ever had. Yeah. And this is why I love Pedro so much. He was faster than Brad Binder and said to the media, well, you can't be perfect everywhere. <laughs> I made some <laughs> mistakes here and there, you know. So it was very, very funny to hear him because he's like a very cool dude when you talk to him yeah and uh he is getting the maturity you know and he f walks this fine line between being entertaining but not cocky you know yes like the like the pizza thing in uh, Mugello. it was perfectly on the line you know nobody I gets mean mad at him for being uh for taunting basically the team he beat but yeah. on the other hand it's very funny and it's uh very likable yeah you know? in england we would describe him as being a bit cheeky yeah yeah <laughs> i think he has a certain swagger yeah yeah exactly and yeah and um he is doing extraordinarily well um at the moment like compare him to his teammate and mm. uh for everybody who doesn't know you would say augusto is the rookie mm-hmm And um, is the MotoGP world now also on the Pedro hype train? And if yes, welcome. Uh, yeah, I mean, for sure. Uh, I think anyone that actually knows, you know, about MotoGP and the lap times he's doing and how impressive they are, like, for sure, everyone's on the, the Pedro hype train. Um, the thing is, it's, you know, we, we talk about him as though he's the second Mark Marquez. Um And if he is, then there's a lot of expectation on what he's going to do this year. So he's obviously getting onto a KTM, which is not the best bike on the grid. When Mark got onto the Honda in 2013, you'd say it was the best bike on the grid. So there's that. You know, is he going to go out and do the headline things like Mark and win straight away? No, probably not. But I do think like almost immediately he's going to be given well, immediately he will be giving Jack a headache for sure. And I think pretty quickly after he'll be giving Brad a headache, you know? Um, 
it really wouldn't surprise me if we, we roll out in Qatar and like Pedro finishes just behind Brad. Well, maybe, maybe that's wrong. I think Brad actually will be fucking good in Qatar. Like, I think he'll be right there. If Pedro is, if he can see Brad coming across the line, you know, like he's within five or six seconds of him. Like, I think that's a phenomenal performance. Do I think he'll get much better than that? Like, maybe not. I don't think he'll be right there with Brad, but I think he can He can be close to him. Uh, and then it's really, you know, like if he's five or six seconds behind Brad, like what's Jack going to do in Qatar? Is he going to be that close to Brad? This is quite a big question. So, um, yeah, definitely like straight away, he's going to be good. What yeah. we would maybe expect from Pedro, like in terms of a championship position in his first year, is that's pretty impossible to answer. But if he is the second Mark Marquez, even on a KTM when it's clearly no, not as good as the Ducati, you know, like he has to be top six in the championship, top five in the championship, really, if he is this good, if he is as good as Mar Marquez. Like Brad Binder put that KTM to fourth in the championship last year. And realistically, you wouldn't be surprised if Brad goes top three in the championship this year. So I would be surprised, honestly, with Enea, Jorge, and Peko and Mark. Well, oh, the, yeah. And Bezeki. Yeah, this, this is true. That's true. But, um, so, you know, like then it's, you know, what can Pedro do? You know, is he, is he going to be like Brad and be contesting for top four in the championship? You know, uh, I don't think so. Do you say, because there are other guys there on Ducatis that are going to be so, so good, but top six, I think isn't, you know, uh, an unrealistic goal. I hate these Mark Marcus comparisons because it's two totally different times. Back then, there were four competitive bikes. Yeah. If you had a very, very bad weekend and didn't crash, you would finish fourth on either a Yamaha or a factory Honda. Then Mark had a little bit of luck that both Danny Pedrosa and Jorge Lorenzo got injured mm -hmm. because then all of a sudden, only Valentino Rossi is your real Yeah. opposition there and he wasn't quite on up to the task in 2013 when he came back from from uh, Ducati so the competitiveness of the field is so much higher and MotoGP has become so much more difficult you know you just have more things to do as a rider you have ride height devices you have um, a lot going on with the wings and how you position yourself uh, during the race so you don't get sucked in or whatsoever and don't overheat your front tire those were all non-existent in 2013 you know and therefore i believe it's wrong to expect a certain result from peco uh, yeah. from pedro i think The better approach, which I have with every rookie, uh, I remember talking about it when Raul and Remy uh, went into MotoGP and also last year with Augusto. The objective should be to finish as many races as possible, yeah. to collect as much data as possible and to not hurt yourself. Like a Jorge Martin situation where he crashes in Portimao and is out for half the season is worst case scenario for a rookie. Mm -hmm. You know, and I really, I mean, I understand it. It's like the same discussion with who's the GOAT, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. You know, those discussions is just popular with people. But uh, I think it's 
really unnecessary to compare Mark's rookie season to Pedro's. You know, you could compare Augustus to Pedro and then have Augusto has a fourth place in Le Mans. And mm -hmm. maybe if Pedro manages to get on the podium, you would say, okay, look, he's doing better. Or compare him with the other KTMs, you know. But um, you laid out that the KTM isn't the most competitive bike out of the top three uh, European bikes. You could argue Aprilia is better. And um, you could also make an argument that Tech, tech 3 is a mess. I mean, I've heard stuff from different people from Moto E to Moto GP, Moto 3, that Tech 3 isn't the best team when it comes to structure and organization. And um, this is all stuff that kind of makes it impossible to compare. So, you know, I think Pedro will surprise a lot of people and he will have good moments, but he will also have moments where he's overwhelmed and maybe uh, makes mistakes and all of a sudden he's uh, out of the points. Could very well be. And it's just a process of being a rookie. Like, same with Nicolo Borrega. You can't expect him to go in there and win every race, you know? It's uh, it's a process. And to learn yeah. everything, how to do it correctly, he has not much time to adapt on a race weekend because you have free practice, yes, but then you have qualifying, you have the sprint race, you have the main race. And it suits Pedro that he's such a quick learner. But I really hope that I the way I know him and the way I assume Akiayu taught him to be is to not let the pressure get to him. Yeah, yeah. And he's very, very calm in situations, you know, and is fun. So I think that he's smart enough to not try to force those expectations, you know. Yeah. And uh, I really hope that he's doing good, stays healthy, and then we can maybe talk about a factory team next season and then then we can talk about results. Yeah, I know for sure. I, I agree largely. Like, if you, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're going into a rookie season, the only thing you demand from them is that they, they give 110 percent, and that they every time they get on the bike, try to get the best out of themselves, and that's it. You know, I think if, well, we know we asked Pedro, and it was like, you know, what are you, what are your own expectations? He's like, I don't have any. And the team, for sure, don't put any expectations on him because it's it's silly to. Until you do the first race, you don't really know his level. You can have a look at testing and kind of guess where he's going to be. Like I think if we go to guitar, like a, a top 10 is definitely realistic for him. Um, you know, and, it, and then it's like, right, maybe he pulls off some magic and he's actually a lot more competitive than what we've seen so far. And, you know, he scores a really, really strong result and, starts floating around the top six but you know you don't know until he goes and does that first race and as you say then it's like he does the first race he does the second race does the third race does the fourth race and you, then you kind of like can have a look at where he is in his progression and then from there then you start to improve but the only thing you can ask for him is just every time he gets on the bike he gives it 110 percent and really tries to learn that's it and he's on a KTM, and I'm not necessarily the biggest KTM fan because over the last couple of years, they've always been up and down, very inconsistent, and I thought that the steel frame was just stupid to use, and they kind of got rid of it now. I think Augusto is still riding the steel frame, 
No, he's now on the carbon one. Now on a carbon? Okay. So they got rid of it. Uh, everybody's using it now. And um, KTM seems like, from the outside, please uh, elaborate if I'm wrong, and that they are more a manufacturer who copies what other manufacturers are doing. Like they entered MotoGP, got Mike Leitner, and it's looked a lot like a Honda. And then they developed, uh, of course, over the past seasons. And now you could see them implementing those big wings at the front from Ducati, those downwash ducts. Then Aprilia came along with the with the ground effect thing. They copied that as well, which is fair game. And then the rear um, wing, I believe Ducati and Aprilia started with, with the carbon thing, uh, I first heard it from Aprilia, but I don't know where that came from in KTM. But in general, it appears to be that KTM isn't really innovating a lot of stuff. They're just putting pieces together that they see work. And this kind of makes me wonder if you could really overtake somebody like Ducati or overtake Aprilia and be competitive consistently if you don't innovate something that the others uh, don't have so you could leapfrog them you know what's your take on this you you watched ktm develop a lot more closely than i have over the past seasons and also the other manufacturers so what do you make out of this i I think i conspiracy theory yeah i i think i disagree but not uh, like disagree in a flat out sense of like you're wrong um, I do think they innovate, but so if you go back to the start of KTM in Merton GP, yeah, everyone knows that essentially what they did was they looked at the bike that was winning at the time and they went, okay, let's take the, um, the major design points and kind of put them into our own package. But they even had a screamer engine, right? They had a screamer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah initially, but they got rid of that pretty quick. Um, yeah, so they, they had a Screamer engine. It was, well, it looked a lot like the Honda in terms of the geometry. Apparently, it was relatively similar to the Honda. We know that they always like kind of had this uh, real kind of on-the-limit front-end feeling for a long time, and, well, welcome to Honda territory. Um, but they started out by doing something different to what anyone had done before with the steel frame, and they've always done that. They have a steel frame in motocross. They have a steel frame with everything they do, you know. There's always that design point that is different. And I think that is an ethos of KTM doing it their own way, but also looking at it and going, if you just do what everyone else does, then you'll only ever get to the same level as them. You'll never go beyond. So I think that's an innovative thing there anyway, to be like, okay, we see that everyone does the, you know, the aluminium chassis and whatever, let's do it steel and let's see if we can make it work. And in motocross, they have made it work and they raised the bar in motocross. And for sure, the KTM at the minute is like, you could say it's the best bike in, in the motocross field. A lot of people say the stock Yamaha is better than the KTM, but the bike that's winning all the championships or has won most of the championships recently is the KTM. Obviously, the Yamaha has won a few recently, but mainly the KTM has been dominating both in America and then also in the MXGP scene. Um, so there's that. So then they come into to MotoGP and quite boldly after a long, long time, they ditched the, the steel chassis to go with carbon. 
whether they were the first to start working on it over Aprilia, we don't know. Like they've probably been working on it for you know a couple of years now with R and D, and then actually having the first units and putting it together. They but they're the first ones who are using it, and it could be a very yeah. big advantage if you develop it over time. For sure, yeah. I mean, they're the first to go and you know use it in race simu- in race situation and be on the podium with a full carbon chassis. The way that they do their carbon chassis is definitely innovative in a MotoGP sense because what they have is like carbon tubes and then they're bonded into what we presume is a mix of aluminium and titanium for the parts where you have a lot of stress where, you know, you have the um, swing arm pivot going through and where the engine mounts bolt onto and stuff like that. So that's quite an innovative method to do it. Um, we actually see it, the first time I saw it was... Uh, in mountain biking and uh, downhill mountain biking a company called Afton bikes um, they did that they had carbon tubes and then aluminium or titanium lugs they call them where those carbon tubes bond into so definitely a fairly innovative process there um in other things with the aero obviously they didn't really properly get stuck into the aero until they had the partnership with red bull advanced technologies but they were the first to pair the downwash ducts with the, the ground effect side fairings obviously their version perhaps maybe didn't work that great initially but actually they still use it now it's very slightly updated but they still use it now um like brad switched back to it halfway through the year after the update and all this sort of stuff so there's an innovative thing there you know with taking ideas from other manufacturers and putting them together and putting it into their way they definitely copy for sure like everything in motorsport is copied from someone or some other team, you know? But I think the innovative thing is they look at ideas and good ideas that work from elsewhere and they bring them in, they put their own spin on it. And that, that is where I've, I would say they're innovative. But definitely, like, if you're not copying or taking ideas from your competitors, then you're doing it wrong. No, of course. I mean, Honda and Yamaha are basically doing the same. Yeah. Yamaha is kind of innovative with their uh, inline four, but look at the Honda. It's just what works for the other manufacturers and put it on our bike. And they've done it pretty radically. I like the rear wing that they combine the Stegosaurus with the rear wing, really. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess the next evolution would be to do something like Ducati does with the uh, downwash ducts and the and the ground effect thing. My thing with KTM is just that every manufacturer, at some way, I've seen them innovate something really crazy, like Honda with the seamless gearbox. Back then, it was huge. Then you had Ducati with the Arrow. Like they were the first ones to put wings on a bike. It was unheard of. And it took them five years to really make it work. And then everybody did it. Then it was kind of banned from 2017 onwards. But they have found a way to uh, maneuver through this rulebook. And now we have Ducati how it is now. Ducati is very, very innovative with the electronics. They made this electronic setting work for them much better than everybody else. You have Aprilia bringing new stuff in the aero department. It looks like Aprilia is very, very good at developing and innovating within aerodynamics, like the ground effect thing. And maybe this diffuser thing is something we will see more over the next couple of seasons because they sparked an idea. Maybe it didn't really work out, but it will get better. And 
you know? So with the carbon chassis, it's correct. It's true that they have, uh, they're the only ones with the carbon chassis. Mm -hmm. But my opinion on that one is that the steel frame was so shitty that they needed to move on from it because it clearly didn't work consistently. Yes, you had races here and there where they, where they were unbeatable and they were very great. But look at Brett Binder. He won in 2020 in Bruno. Miguel won in 2020 in Portimao and in Austria. Austria. And Miguel won in 21 in Catalonia. Yes. And Brett had this uh, crazy race in Austria. But since then, no race wins. So you get to a point where I believe the lower level compared to the aluminum chassis of the steel frame enhanced KTM's decision to move to the carbon because Aprilia is working on it as well and it seems to be more difficult to achieve a higher level of performance with the carbon uh, chassis. But still, they did it and it's a very, very uh, innovative thing to do and uh, also could be a huge potential if you develop this 10 years and have like a, let's say, three-year head start on Aprilia, mm. maybe what, whatever, they, whenever they will bring it. Um, this could be something, but it looks like KTM is just like picking, okay, this works for others, let's put it on our bike and after. So I don't know if this is necessarily enough to satisfy their approach of we want to win here if they don't bring something very, very innovative, which yeah. takes other manufacturers years to develop. Like the Aero thing is a very, very uh, easy example of this. Ducati was very keen on the electronics and not, sorry, on the aerodynamics and Honda and Yamaha basically did nothing over the pandemic. And now you have those monsters and you have a Yamaha that looks like a bike from 2021, you know? And yeah. I, I'm not quite sure. I'm very excited to see how Pedro does on a KTM. Um, if, they can manage to be on one level with the Ducatis or even above, but because then I think Pedro's riding talent will uh, eventually be greater than Paco's in ears. I really think that. But um, KTM has to get there first. They have to be consistent. They have to be fast over one lap, and they have to be very, very, um, yeah, smart with their approach on how to manage a season. And I haven't seen that yet from KTM. That's why maybe it's a bit harsh to say they don't innovate, but maybe mm. the level of innovation is not as high as in Ducati or in Aprilia. Yeah, no, that's, it's a fair comment. Um, I think as well, we have to remember that they're the newest factory. And by the time that they came in in 17, I think it was. Um, no, earlier. Was it? They were earlier, I believe. I think it was 17, no? I think it was uh, the last race of 15 where Mika Kallio raced and then really? from 2016 I... onwards. Well, maybe. But I was okay. 17. Um, but you could argue that Aprilia is even newer because they ran this stupid uh, CRT thing for the first two or three years. Yeah, they basically ran a, a, yeah. Yeah, a Donut V4 superbike. Um which actually, like, in its first couple of years, it developed really well, and then they made it into a bit of a mess. Uh, but the, the point with KTM is, like, you know, they're, they're still the newest manufacturer. Um, 
and by the time they came in, all these sorts of things were done. Like the big en- big bang engine was already done. Aero was starting to come in already, like getting fairly extensive, like by seventeen. Um, fucking hell, yeah. The Ducati had that big aero fairing that like went halfway down the fairing as well. You mean the Jorge Lorenzo one? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know what else did you have in seventeen? Carbon swing arms were already around. Uh, all sorts of stuff. You know. So they were, they're always playing catch up. And the first thing that they have innovated is this carbon chassis. And I do think that you'll go and see other manual, like we already are, Aprilia are working on it, whether they actually bring it to the track or not. If they find, you know, that the chassis is good and it works better, then okay. But I think you'll see other factories look at it as well. You know, I think you could see Honda look at a carbon chassis and, and Ducati. We know that Honda are obviously tried before with bonding carbon onto the outside of an aluminium chassis you know so they've kind of looked to the using carbon to uh you know tune some of the weaknesses of the aluminium chassis and all this sort of stuff the big thing with the carbon chassis is that it's so light like it's apparently ktm chassis is incredibly light like it's barely believable how light it is you know um and there was some rumors or whispers that apparently when they first brought it in they were worried about the bike even being in the you know above the minimum weight limit because it was that light and if you can make your bike lighter it helps in a lot of ways you know maybe it could be a disadvantage by making it a little bit too light and it's um, maybe a little bit skittish but you can dial that out with other things you know larger aero and all that sort of stuff and electronics so yeah I i think definitely the point is valid that ktm don't appear to be the most innovative but I think largely it's because they've always been having to catch up. And, you know, Ducati, Honda, Yamaha have 20 plus years of development and innovation into their bikes where KTM haven't got that. They've got eight years, you know. Which brings us, you already mentioned Honda, to uh, somebody who didn't even bother to copy for five years or whatsoever. <laughs> and... uh are even less innovative than um, than KTM. I mean, the last thing I really can remember where Honda shocked the MotoGP world was the seamless gearbox. And this was 2012 or whatsoever. And it took off <clears throat> three tenths per lap time, uh, per lap. And then over the course of a race, it was crazy fast. But um, Honda has made a huge step compared to last season. The bike looks incredibly different. The bike is apparently a lot lighter. I've heard mm-hmm. something like eight kilos. Yeah. Where I think like, what did you do before? Like you have a weight limit of 155 or 157. What is it? Uh, I think 157, yeah. Yeah. But then you run around with a bike, which is 165. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and... uh they made massive upgrades with the aero. They made, apparently with the engine, a lot of upgrades, new mm-hmm. chassis, new everything. And the big question is, of course, they won't be competitive for the first race. Of course, they will test a lot and bring a lot of new parts with all the concessions, bring engine updates. Have they figured out or made improvements in the big areas which concern Honda, which is rear grip and electronics. Do you know anything about what's going on there? Um, 
electronics is harder to know because you you never get a, an answer on exactly what they're working on and also then you know whether they're making tangible step forwards because electronics covers a wide range of topics so you, you don't really get a specific answer definitely in terms of the rear grip they made a step forward but it's still the biggest problem um they just struggle with it spinning too much and then because of that spinning it's chewing the tire and then that means they struggle in the longer runs and all this sort of stuff so uh definitely a big step forward the engine is the biggest single thing maybe but then on the chassis side as well apparently the bike is a lot longer now um and they seem to have found something that gives them a lot more front feeling and and you know better braking stability and stuff like this but still stability is the other big downside of the bike they don't have a lot of rear stability um on the exit of the corner do you think this will come with a better better engine like this famous quote uh 80 of your rear grip comes from your engine i think and sorry with on. the concessions obviously where they can develop the engine do you think this is something they can uh, fix during the season or do you think it's more of a geometry weight distribution or whatever thing I think it's all like every reason altogether. You know, there's the small areas in each thing, whether it's the engine, the geometry, electronics, where they can make improvements in all of them to eventually get to the level they need to be. Um, the thing that's interesting is obviously the engine is new and it does sound a fraction different, but it's still the only V4 out there which sounds different to the other V4s. The other V4s, we all believe they're this twin pulse configuration and the Honda still sounds way different, S sounds a little bit more aggressive, you know. Could you explain this? So the, the twin pulse thing is basically in a in a V4, you have two pistons looking one way, the front bank of cylinders and two pistons looking the other way. That's how you have a, a V configuration, you know. Um, in a traditional V4, each piston, well, in a, a traditional firing order, whether it's a V4 or an inline four, each piston fires um, in line with each other. So one goes, then the second one goes, and the third one goes, and the fourth one goes. What that means is you have the spark plug actually igniting in sequence. So one, two, three, four type thing. Um, I think it's actually like one, three, two, four, if you go for an inline, uh, inline four. What the twin pulse is, two of the um, pistons fire at the same time. So essentially, you only have two ignitions, or at least two times where there is an ignition event for each cycle. So you have two pistons hitting the top of the cylinder at the same time, then coming back down, and then in the next two are up um, at the same time. So it's kind of turning a V4 into like a V-twin, you know, and V-twins are famously quite smooth. They have a really smooth power curve. So you can get the power of having a V4, but then make it smoother by kind of getting it to act like a V-twin. Um, And that's a big thing that helped Ducati really make a step forward. And then also KTM last year changed to that twin pulse configuration. You can hear it when you hear the two different engines fire up. They're both still big bangs. Um, but the, when they do the twin pulse configuration, it just has a deeper tone. Um, it was quite interesting because Brad Binder last year was like about the engine. He was just kind of, oh, it's, you know, it's whatever, like it's not faster. But it was Jack Miller who'd had a lot of experience with that, what we believe was the twin pulse V4 from the Ducati that went, no, no, it's better. You get to the lap time easier and smoother. Like it's it's better. It's not faster. It's just better. Um, and the Honda, we believe, is still not like that. You know, 
it fires in a more traditional way. Um, so you mean more screamer? Yeah, but it's not a screamer. It's still a big bang. You know, it's just perhaps it fires in a more aggressive pattern. So you know, I don't know too much about it. I might be you know someone that knows a lot more about engines will will be able to clarify more than me. But that's my basic understanding of it. Um, so what that will help is if you have a, an engine that naturally delivers its power smoother, you should technically have better rear grip. Obviously, it depends on a lot of things, how you manage it with electronics and all this sort of stuff. But Honda is still the, the factory in V4 that struggles the most with rear grip, and they're the only one that still doesn't have this engine that sounds like all the others. So, you know, you wonder if they would explore that avenue at some point. Do you think Honda is in better shape than Yamaha? Or do you think Yamaha is doing better than Honda? Whether they're in better shape is tricky. What I think is that Honda's future is brighter. Um, I look at Honda now like I looked at Aprilia in 2020. They've made a change for the good. They've found the direction to go in. Okay, if you look at Aprilia's season from 19 to 20, when Aprilia changed from their 75-degree V4 to the 90-degree V4, their results didn't necessarily improve. Actually, it looked a little bit worse in their first year with the V4, with the 90-degree bike, sorry. But it was for sure a much better bike and had a lot more potential. I think what you'll see in the next couple of seasons is, is Honda take bigger steps and get better, you know. Whereas Yamaha, I think... In this rule set with the aero, I think it's naturally against them. I think that V4s work better in this rule set than in Light 4. Um, so I don't see Yamaha's ceiling as high, and I don't think we'll see them take as big steps forwards as what Honda can do in the next few years. What are Yamaha's big steps they took? Uh, the engine is smoother than last year and a little bit more power. So they have slightly better rear grip apparently, but it's still too aggressive for qualifying um and they really struggle with on the new tire it just causes all sorts of problems when the new tire spins and then it makes it aggressive at the corner and they have um some rear vibration and stuff like this so they can't extract the performance from a new tire you know they can go as fast on a new tire as they can on a tire that's had 12 laps on it so that's still the biggest problem but the fact that they've made it better in terms of the top speed <clears throat> excuse me Hopefully, they'll then be able to use their really strong braking to actually overtake now, even though they're still struggling with the rear grip. So if you have a couple of extra Ks down the straight, okay, you're still struggling out the corner, but by the end of the straight, you'll be a fraction closer, and then hopefully you can outbreak them still. Yamaha's arrow looks like it finally arrived in 2021 <laughs> when uh, yeah, those Aprilia wings, they ran back then. Yeah, look extremely similar to the Yamaha wings they're running now. They have basically nothing on the side of the fairing except those downwash ducts, mm -hmm. I believe. And like the rear wing looks lazy in a way. You know, you have this wild thing Honda is doing where they're combining the Stegosaurus to the real spoiler. Then KTM is doing a lot of stuff with the rear wing. Ducati is doing a lot of stuff with the rear. Aprilia brings some kind of Batmobile. And uh, Yamaha, they just put something on there so it looks uh, funny, I believe. So 
it looks like okay we are doing something you know but i don't think they have an actual understanding of air flowing from the time it hits the bike until it's it the bike releases the air in a way you know and it looks like this is a very dumbed down version of aerodynamics they had back in 2019 20 21 you know where they didn't have anything at the fairing they are taking advantage of something like a ground effect which could be cool for yamaha because yamaha always handled very well mm -hmm. and the ground effect improves corner speed but is uh, not as as mobile or as agile from one side to the other side you know and maybe i don't know i would try it if i was yamaha at least maybe this down um this um i lost the word fuck uh this uh, ground down. effect thing yeah, yeah. Um, kind of complements the character of the yamaha could very well be that it still handles better than most bikes but is fast in in the corner you know And uh, I don't see Yamaha trying a lot. Where I see Honda, they're doing everything. They're putting everything on the bike. The bike is lighter. The bike, they have new arrow. They have everything, you know. And even though I would agree with you that Honda's future is brighter, even though Honda brings all of this, Yamaha looks lazy, you know. And I really don't understand why. You know, they say or. Uh, Fabio said that they have a very new, um, very new approach to testing and development, and some things apparently radically changed. But I don't know because all Fabio wanted ever was more power, but I don't think this is really the issue for the Yamaha. And they have, I mean, Andrea Dovizioso, Valentino Rossi, they all said, "Hey, we need rear grip," and Fabio is all about power. And they don't have a satellite team, which is uh, negative for data collection, and you can't compare stuff, which makes it a little bit um, tough for me to comprehend the the statement that Yamaha did radically different things, but then don't really bring anything to the tests visibly from the aerodynamics perspective. You know, from TV you can't see if the bike is shorter or longer or mm. heavier or lighter. You know, you just basically see the arrow and um the thing with the top speed my understanding is that you mentioned how great yamaha's on the braking that they just break later so the top speed appears to be higher because the measurement point is in the braking zone of let's say a ducati yeah but not in the braking zone of a yamaha where it's difficult to say, okay, Yamaha's really fast now because it doesn't seem like this. And also top speed doesn't necessarily provide you too much of the benefits when you look at a whole racetrack because you make yeah. up your time in the corners and that's where the aerodynamics kicks in, you know? Formula One cars aren't necessarily fast on a straight, you know, but they're damn fast in the corner. Yeah, And it looks like that... Yamaha still didn't really get it from the outside on that the tides have shifted now and you need to bring in massive amounts of arrow and uh, you need to bring in stuff and try it and I mean a satellite team would be great yes but it doesn't seem like from the outside that Yamaha really changed their approach what's your understanding of all yeah, of this? Yeah I mean my viewpoint on the Yamaha is uh 
that obviously in this aero age of MotoGP, I think all you've seen that aero do, and well, yeah, what it has done is it's limited the weaknesses of a of a V4 that doesn't have aero. It's allowed it to corner faster by forcing it to get into the ground, and and then they can carry that corner speed and have a better feeling. And also with the development of the engine and all this sort of stuff and the change to big bang engines and all this, we've seen over the last 10 years, V4s just get better at being smoother in the corner and all this. Because naturally a V4 is a more aggressive engine, has a shorter crankshaft, so it spins up quicker than an inline four. Um, I think the thing that holds Yamaha back now is the fact that I believe that Fabio in his head is essentially like asking for all these things that he sees from a V4. You know, he wants the aero um, and he wants faster acceleration and all this sort of stuff, but he has a bike that works in an entirely different way. You know, the engine is completely different and naturally you've always seen Yamaha's work by carrying a corner speed and more lean angle for longer and running these long sweeping lines and still the Yamaha, they do that because you hear them, you know, saying in races that we can't run the lines we need to, to extract the lap time and all this sort of stuff um, because they have to run longer sweeping lines and then it leads them vulnerable to being uh, overtaken by the V4s that can just dive for the apex, park it, turn it and fire off the corner and fire off faster. So I think naturally, you know, when Yamaha are looking at developing aero and they go for like high downforce aero and all this sort of stuff, it just works against the way that the bike needs to be ridden and needs to be developed. You know, you have Carl Crutchlow in the last year saying that the problem is not the power. We have to have better rear grip um, and carry that corner speed and use the smooth engine and a slightly slower engine, but one that allows us to extract the rear grip and then extract the actual power that the engine already has anyway. You know, so I think Carl looks at it much like the bike doesn't need all the aero. We need to develop in a different way to what the V4s do. We have to go back at winning at our game, not winning at their game, you know? Um, Don't you... Sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, so I think that's the thing. I think naturally with adding more aero onto an inline four bike, I don't think is always going to get you to where you want to be in beating V4s. Don't you think it would be A, worth trying? Yeah, it definitely is worth trying. B, don't you think there is maybe a way to make Arrow work for the Yamaha? And which wouldn't work for a V4 and vice versa? I think there has to be a way that it works. But Yamaha, at least from my understanding, are one of the few factories where, you know, Ducati have ownership from Audi. And Audi are obviously big big into cars, they have all the wind tunnels and all this sort of stuff. They have the aero people already. And Ducati have a whole um, aerodynamics department, which is full of people that specialize in aerodynamics. And that's all done in-house now in Ducati. Um, Yamaha, from what I understand, are one of the few that doesn't have, you know, an extensive aerodynamics department in-house. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that they do a lot of their aerodynamics work outsourced with partners um obviously ktm essentially now it's all in-house with red bull of advanced technologies the prelia the piaggio group has so much money and so many operations that they can Aprilia itself isn't very rich you know they have the smallest budget of any factory team but they have 
a lot of budget to be allocated if they need it. And they've obviously said to, to Piaggio, look, we need to go into aerodynamics. And they've gone into that heavily, which is good. So you've seen development there. And then obviously Honda are the other ones where they have the capability to go and develop aerodynamics. And you're seeing that now. But for a long, long time, they didn't think it was necessary. So they didn't. So I think what holds Yamaha back as well is that if they were to develop aero that does work for an inline four and doesn't work for a V4 and it was something different entirely, I think you just they don't have the capability to do it themselves. Do you think that from 2027 onwards with the new rule set, Yamaha will be more competitive again? Yeah. Yeah, I believe so. Okay, this was my last question. So, no, my last question will be, who's your pick for uh, MotoGP World Champion? You ask everybody on the grid who's your favorite, so now I have to ask uh, you. I think Pekka. Um, do you want me to say why or not? I mean, it's obvious why. We talked like 30 minutes about Ducati and I guess uh, <laughs> you don't have to repeat yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think more of it though is to do with Pecco and not Ducati. I think okay, he's still you think Pecco is just the better rider, more mature, more complete rider? Uh, yeah, maybe more complete, you could say. Yeah, definitely more mature than Jorge Martin. Yeah. Well, not mature, but can control his emotions better. Um That's not saying that I don't think Jorge Martin could beat Pecco. I think he could, but he just has to make those changes and become the rider that he needs to be to do it. But I think the other thing is Pecco, also, if he can make some changes and iron out the mistakes, he's already shown that he's learning and getting much quicker in one lap and he just looks more comfortable than ever. And I, I genuinely think he's going to be really fucking hard to beat. So Yeah. Did you get a chance to uh, punch Elliot York in the face for his comments on uh, <laughs> uh, After no, the I Flag? Haven't, I haven't seen him since I got back yet, actually. Maybe I'll message him now and go for a beer and whack him. <laughs> <laughs> for everybody who doesn't know, um, I believe Lewis and Elliot were talking about Aprilia, but I'm not uh, quite sure. They were talking about something. Yamaha. And um, Yamaha, was it? Okay. Yeah. And... Um, You had some idea there, um, which we as a spectator uh, didn't uh, see or didn't hear. But Lewis said, uh, that's J uh, Jack's idea. And um, Elliot says, yeah, he's right. That's probably like the only good idea he ever had or something like this. So. <laughs> yeah, no, cheating, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you a lot for joining me. It was great to talk to you again. And I really hope that this season uh, you'll get more chance to work on the air because I think you're doing a phenomenal job. I really appreciate the After the Flag stuff. And I really appreciate that you take your time to talk with me about basically the same stuff you talked about on After the Flag already. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you very much. And I really appreciate it. I hope you have a great evening. And I hope you and Elliot can settle things. <laughs> yeah, we will do. No, I appreciate the kind words. Uh, I'm actually going to be commentating on Motor E this year, so oh, you'll hear uh, nice. a little bit more of me for all the 12 people that watch Motor E. So there you go. I watched Motor E in Assen once uh, when I was there live, and it was such a crazy good race. But the problem for me is 
it's so busy already on Sunday yeah, yeah. or Saturday as well. Then you still have to watch uh, something like the Rookies Cup and yeah. Moto E, and there's like a point where it's too much, you know. Yeah, yeah, but, no, I can agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I wish you a lot of fun this season commentating Moto E. Maybe I'll watch a race or two, <laughs> and uh, I wish you a great time until the season starts. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Hope all's well. Goodbye. Speak to you.